Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we are so blessed to have this gospel. Uh, Lord, we know that you anointed Luke to write it. We know that you prepared his whole life in such a way that he would be the perfect man to write it. Lord, a Greek who could speak to Greeks, a, a Gentile who could speak to Gentiles, a man who could speak to us. And Lord, he gives us so much uh, information here. I don't even want to call it information because it's much more than that, Lord. It's your word. He gives us so much of your word here that, that we don't get anywhere else, uh, even in the other gospels. And so we're so blessed, Lord, that you anointed him to write this book. And Lord, I ask today as we begin this study, I ask for an anointing on us. Lord, just as you prepared Luke to write this book, you prepared us to be here this very day to hear uh, what he has to say in this book. Lord, these are your words, uh, Lord, that you spoke through Luke. And, Lord, we want to hear these words. We want to be blessed by these words. We want these words to change our very lives. And so, uh, Lord, we know that that can only happen uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I just ask today, Lord, that you, you bless us. Uh, uh, Lord, and that we bless you by being attentive to what you would say to us. We just thank you for, for what this gospel is all about. It's about Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord, and we want to honor him today. And, Lord, we just ask you to bless us and anoint us to hear your word. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I'm excited today. We're going into uh, the gospel of Luke, uh, uh, the uh, third gospel. We know the author's name. It's given to us. Uh, it is Lucas, uh, the Luke, the same Luke that wrote the book of Acts. Uh, we know from uh, the book of Acts that uh, uh, that Luke uh, joined Paul in his journeys when Paul was at Troas. Uh, Paul had gotten the Macedonian call, and uh, he, he had gotten the Macedonian call. He was, about to, he was in his second missionary journey. And when you read the book of Luke, the pronouns change in chapter 16. When, when, when Paul is at Troas, they change from the uh, third person uh, plural to the first person plural, from they to we. So we know based upon... Uh, this change in pronouns that you got the same writer writing the, the entire book that Luke joins them at that particular point. Uh, he's with Paul when Paul goes to Thessalonica. Uh, he hangs with Paul in some tough times. I don't think he realized what he was getting into when he joined the apostle Paul, but he hung with him there in some tough times. He was with him those two years when Paul was in Caesarea uh, in prison there. Uh, waiting for his trial, and then when he was on his voyage to Rome, uh, Luke was with him on that voyage, and uh, when, when Paul made his final journey to Rome, we don't know if maybe that's, a, uh, maybe he made two journeys to Rome where he was in prison in Rome twice, some believe he was in, there, in prison in Rome twice, some believe that he was in, only in prison, in prison there once, but regardless, that last imprisonment where Paul lost his head, we know that Luke was there with him. Uh, and so, no doubt, Paul and Luke became very close to each other. Uh, Paul mentions Luke in several of his epistles. Uh, in his subscription to the second letter, letter of Corinthians, uh, he says, he mentions Luke as serving with him uh, with Titus and Philippi, which is in Macedonia, in uh, Philemon. Uh, he names uh, uh, Luke as his co-worker in the ministry. Uh, his sidekick in the ministry. Uh, in 2 Timothy, when Paul is facing death, that final time in Rome, I, 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 this says a lot about Luke, what Paul says about Luke. He says, Demas and the others have left me, only Luke is with me. And so Luke hung with him to the very end. Uh, we know that Luke is a Greek, or was a Greek. Uh, he we know that he was a Greek because his name is Greek. Lucas is a Greek name. Uh, scholars, there's a consensus among scholars that, that uh, he wrote in perfect Koine Greek. All those that have studied his writings says it's Greek. You know, it had to be a Greek to write the, with the kind of perfect uh, Greek diction that he used. And so um, uh, 
he's, he's definitely, we know he was a Greek. Uh, Paul says uh, he groups him in the men who were not of the circumcision. Uh, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. Now, that's the only place we know or the only direct reference to Luke being a doctor. But we can be certain that he was a doctor because of all the various medical terms that he uses uh, in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. We'll actually see a couple of those medical terms that he uses today in the book of Luke. So he was a smart, well-educated man uh, with medical expertise. Uh, also, he was an expert in shipping. Uh, when you get into the book of Acts and, and, he, and they're on those journeys, those seafaring journeys uh, with Paul, uh, it's, you, you, it's amazing how accurate he is in the description of sailing. So that leads some people to believe that he was a ship's doctor before he met Luke, I mean met Paul and journeyed with Paul on Paul's journey. So, so uh, I, I think I would agree with that. Uh, and not only was Luke a doctor and a, and a sailor, he was an, also an, a historian, a, a, a great historian, one of the great historians in all of antiquity. We get a lot of information about the days in which uh, Christ lived from Luke. He's, he's very detailed in his dates and names. Let me give you one example here. Go to Luke chapter 3. And look at verse number 1. In Luke chapter 3, verse number 1. It says, now in the fifth... Now, watch how accurate he is here, or how detailed he is. He says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Idaria, and the region of... In the region of... Trach, uh, here we go. Trachonitis, and... Lysipia, uh, the tetrarch of Abilene, and while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Now that's a detail right there that really seems strange that there would be two high priests. Well, well, from antiquity, from the writings of antiquity, we know that Annas was was uh, Caiaphas's father-in-law, and and Caiaphas was Annas was the 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 rightful priest, and Caiaphas was the pre high priest appointed by Rome, and so there were actually two high priests in the days of Jesus, and Luke nails that. They were both high priests. Uh, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, uh, in the wilderness. And so yeah, that's just an example of how detailed he is uh, in his dates and in his names. And, and uh, by the 20th century, every one of those uh, dates and names had been verified uh, except Pontius Pilate. And so... For centuries, it was believed that Pontius Pilate was actually a fictional character, that there was no such man named Pontius Pilate. And then in 1961, a group of Italian archaeologists uh, were working there at Caesarea at Herod's palace. And outside of Her Herod's palace, uh, at the temple to Caesar, they found this inscription. And let me just read you this inscription. I'll get it written here. It says, this temple is dedicated to divine Caesar by Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. So, so right there from antiquity, uh, you get this fact that, that we're given in the Gospels and, and specifically in the Gospel of Luke. And so all throughout Luke's writings, uh, his historical information is, has, has been verified by archaeologists. So, so not only can we trust the history, we can trust the theology and the and the facts that Luke, all the facts that Luke gives us in the uh, Gospel of Luke. But here's the question that, that I would ask uh, if, if, you know, if I were talking to Luke, I wouldn't ask that now, but maybe back then when Luke was writing the Gospel, I might have asked him, Luke, why are you writing this Gospel? I mean, there are all sorts of written accounts of the life of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, by the time... Luke was on the scene, and by the time he was writing his gospel, uh, the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Matthew were already in circulation, and they were pretty, uh, pretty complete in the story of Christ. And so, so uh, uh, John's gospel hadn't come out yet, but, 
but uh, you, you got to ask, why would he even write this gospel? And, and, and you get the answer to that when you read his gospel because there are several things uh, in the gospel that are different from Mark and Matthew. For one, Luke wasn't writing to the Jew. Luke was writing to the Greek. He was writing to the Gentile. And, and we'll see that uh, as we, as we uh, journey on in the Gospel of Luke. The other reason that, that I'm so glad he wrote this book is there's so many things about the life of Christ and about the background uh, of, the, of the Gospel that we don't get in the rest of the Gospels. Uh, let me give you some examples here. First of all, there are six miracles that Luke records that aren't recorded in the other Gospels. There are 18 parables uh, that Luke records that aren't recorded in the other Gospels. Two of my favorite parables, the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. We wouldn't have those parables except for Luke because he's the one who records those two parables for us. He also records for us the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, and I love that story because we get, so, we get some, some insight into Hades. We get some insight in the afterlife that we don't get anywhere else in the Bible. So I'm grateful that he, he wrote that. Uh, uh, I, he writes some stories to me that are very touching. And, and uh, I'll give you one example, the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's only in the Gospel of Luke. And, 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 and there's several things like that that Luke writes that we don't uh, get anywhere else in the other Gospels. But but probably, for me, Luke's greatest contribution uh, to the Bible was his detailed account of the Christmas story. Uh, if he didn't write his gospel for any other reason, I'm glad he wrote it because it's in the gospel of Luke, only in the gospel of Luke, that we get such a detailed account of what took place uh, in the Christmas story, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks. So, so that's why I'm excited to get into the Gospel of Luke, because I love Christmas, and, and Luke must have loved Christmas too, because I, he, he gave us a lot of insight there that, again, we don't get anywhere else. Uh, let's look at Luke's introduction to his book. Now, I've kind of given you a short introduction. Uh, more than likely, just one other thing in my introduction, uh, I would say that he probably wrote this sometime in the late 60s, first century A.D., we, uh, we can uh, surmise that because uh, he doesn't mention the destruction of the temple uh, that took place in 70 A.D. He was with Paul right up until the end when Paul died. And so, so uh, it probably Paul died in maybe 65 A.D., so probably sometimes along that time, just before uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome, uh, Paul finished his gospel and, and gave it to Theophilus, and it uh, at some point uh, began to be uh, uh, copied and circulated and eventually became part of the canon. Now, let's go to uh, chapter 1, and let's begin the gospel, and let's look. He does something that, that you don't get in the other gospels. He actually gives us his introduction. He tells us, he tells us some things here that, that uh, you can tell uh, he's written this from a scholarly standpoint. We know it's anointed by God. But God doesn't dictate, God didn't dictate scripture. He didn't just get on the, uh, into these people's minds and said, I want you to write this word, this word, this word, and this word. He used the personality and the education and the background of that person to write uh, an anointed version of the gospel. And that's what he did for Luke. Luke. So, so, but, but Luke does it in, in, in a scholarly fashion, even though it's anointed. And, and we get his introduction there uh, in the first part of chapter number one. So uh, go with me to chapter number one, and let's read beginning in, in verse number one. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had 
perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an ordinary, an, or, I'm sorry, an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. All right, now, in Luke's introduction, here's what he gives us. He gives us his purpose for writing the book. He gives us his sources where he got his information for his book. And he gives us the subject of his book. And he gives us the audience of his book. Now, what was the purpose of his book? Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to where Luke met Paul. Now, how did he meet Paul? We, we don't know for sure, but we can speculate a little bit. If you... If you if you think about the fact that he was a, an expert sailor, you think about the fact that he was a doctor, uh, you can kind of put those two things together and you might conclude that he was a ship's doctor. Now, in that particular culture, a doctor normally was a slave and his master sent him off to medical school and paid for his medical school, which that's, I think a lot of doctors are slaves to the people that pay for their medical school, but... But uh, uh, if his, his master sent him off and paid for his medical school, and then he served that master. So my theory would be, and, I th and it's the theory of lots of people, that Theophilus, who he's writing to, owned a fleet of ships. And uh, Luke was one of the doctors on those ships. Well, Theophilus and Luke heard about Jesus Christ. And they might have read Matthew, and they might have read Mark, and they read some of the accounts of the Gospels. And Luke sets out to write an orderly account of those things that they heard. In other words, hey, Theophilus trusts trust Luke, and Paul's in town. Paul's in town, the one who's spreading this Gospel. He's famous at this point. And he says, look, Paul's going to get on one of our ships. And I'm going to turn you over to Paul. And you hang out with Paul, and you get all the information you could get. Now, Paul was a good man to hang out with if you wanted to write a gospel. Because he, he had seen the Lord. He knew Peter, and he knew Mark. He worked with Mark. And so uh, he probably might have known Matthew. Uh, uh, he probably knew Mary. And so uh, here's... Theophilus, and he says, I want, you to, I want you to go out and I want you to get all the evidence you can from this man, Paul, and I want you to bring, come back and give me an account. And so, so in his introduction, that's what he says his purpose is, to write an orderly account of these things which you were instructed, these things which we've read about, these things which we've heard about, about Jesus Christ. I want you to go out and I want you to write an orderly account. And, and, and no doubt Luke wrote his introduction after he had written his gospel. And he says, that's what I've done. I've gone out and I've written an orderly account of these things which uh, we've heard about. And i got to tell you, everything that we were excited about when we heard this gospel, everything is true. And I'm going to give you an exact account. I'm even going to give you more than you can find anywhere else. Uh, in this gospel that I'm going to write. And he didn't even call it a gospel at that point. He, he was writing a, a treatise on, on Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, as far as his sources go, he tells us here who his sources were. His sources were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word of Jesus Christ. Now, both those terms, eyewitness and minister, are medical terms. The word eyewitness is the Greek word autopsy, which we get our English word autopsy. What's an autopsy? That's a close examination of something. When a coroner does an autopsy, what's he doing? He's, he's making a close examination of a dead body. So, so the first source that he had were the, were the people who had made an autopsy of Jesus Christ. They had lived so close to Jesus Christ. They just didn't, didn't hear about him. They just didn't see him. They had made a close examination of him, and he was able to talk to them and write down his evidence and put it into an orderly account. The second word that's used right here, minister, 
uh, is not the normal Greek word that's used for minister, diakonos. It's a different Greek word, and it, it's a medical term too. It means intern. He went to the interns of Jesus Christ. What's an intern? Somebody who studies under a master, somebody who studies under some, an expert in a certain field. Who were the interns? They were the, the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so Luke's sources were, were people who were very close to Jesus Christ, people who knew him well enough to do an autopsy on him. We're not talking about a, an autopsy of his dead body. We're talking about an autopsy of his life. And he was able to be near those people who were interns under Jesus Christ. Now, who did it? Who, who would you say had the best, did the best examination of all of Jesus Christ? That would be his mother, Mary. And I have no doubt that Luke had a chance to interview uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. I mean, there are things that Luke tells us in this gospel about Mary that you couldn't get unless you had talked to Mary. I mean, when you, you, look, you flip over to uh, the second chapter and look at verse number uh, 19, and it says, But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, who, who knew that but Mary? I mean, because she kept it secret. And some, for, I, I think she trusted Luke and knew what Luke was, was doing was a worthy cause. And so she shared that with, with uh, Luke. That when, when she saw all these wonderful things happening, the angel Gabriel and all of these uh, shepherds and, and the, the wise men coming to, the, to Bethlehem to worship the child, she pondered those things in her heart. She kept them in her heart. But she told Luke about them, and Luke recorded them uh, in his gospel. And so, so we're really blessed that he went out and he set out to, to do such a, a, a detailed uh, autopsy of Jesus Christ and, 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 and he made sure that he had good sources, the disciples and people like Mary, Peter and, and Mark and Paul. Those were his, his, his uh, uh, the eyewitnesses that he used and the interns that he used. Mary, people like that. Now, this, let's go to the subject. Let's look, uh, look at the subject. Who was the subject of his gospel? Well, we know Jesus Christ, but how does he refer to Jesus Christ in his introduction? He refers to him in verse 2 as he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. That's the same subject that John had in his gospel. Remember John and, and how he introduced his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? Well, that's, that's the subject of Luke's gospel, the Word. And it, me it had much more meaning to Luke, I think, than it did uh, to John because, because the Greeks throughout their history had searched uh, for the philosopher who had the words of a div divine human being. That's who they searched for. I mean, that's why they looked up to Plato and Socrates. Now, Socrates and Plato certainly weren't divine, uh, but they spoke profound things. Now, they spoke some things that weren't very profound, too, but they did speak some very profound words, and, and, and the Greeks were always looking for this one who had the perfect logos, well, Luke, guess what? He found him. He found him in Jesus Christ. And so he said, hey, these uh, sources that I have, these eyewitnesses and ministers uh, are eyewitnesses and ministers of the Logos. The Logos that we've been looking for, we have found him. Someone once uh, described uh, Luke's work not as a depiction of a divine human but as the humanity of deity, but as the de depiction of the humanity of deity, and I agree with that totally. And that what, what Luke found wasn't the divine man. There's no such thing. There's no created man who has, is divine. There's no created man who has the divine word. Now, man can think things that are the thoughts of God because we're created in the image of God. But what Luke found wasn't the divine man. He found the the humanity. In Jesus Christ, he found God in the flesh. And there's a big difference there. And then we look at his audience. And I've already discussed his audience a little bit uh, earlier. Uh, his audience was none other than this man, Theophilus. Now, what's the name Theophilus mean? 
Theo, theos, what's that? God. Phileo uh, means love. So a lover of God. So he's, his audience is this man called Theophilus, this lover of God. We see that name in verse number 3. Now, that leads some to believe that he was writing to the church only. This was specifically written to the church because who are we? We are supposedly lovers of God. And so that was just the phrase he used uh, for, for us because we're lovers of God. I don't agree with that at all. I believe this is a proper name. And there was this man named Theophilus, and I believe that because he gives this adjective to him here in verse number 3. He says, most excellent Theophilus. This person who was in a high position, again, he could have been uh, uh, in, a high, in a high position in the government, and, and that would maybe change the way I presented the background a little bit. But in any case, he was a very important person. Uh, if he owned a, a big shipping company, I think he would have called him most excellent Theophilus too. But, but he writes to this man who is a friend of his, a very important man, and that was his intention, was to go out, the two of them were friends, he might have been his master and they were very close and his intention was to go out and write this orderly account for himself and also for his friend Theophilus and Theophilus was going to fund the bill. Theophilus was the one who was going to pay for all his journeys and everything that he did. And I think Theophilus again met Paul and Luke met Paul and Theophilus says, hey, you can go with Paul and you can through your travels with Paul and your talks with Paul, you're going to be able to write an orderly account of what actually is taking place. Is this really true? This all sounds too good to be true. You know, that's a problem with a lot of people when it comes to the gospel. It sounds too good to be true. Well, Luke's going to find out that, hey, it's good. It's too good, but it's also true. All right, now. Uh, let's actually get now into the gospel that Luke wrote, and we'll get just a little ways here today. Uh, pick up with me in uh, verse number 5. Pick up with me in verse number 5. And what a great story we're coming to. I mean, uh, this, this story of, of Zacharias and his encounter with Gabriel, and uh, as, as Gabriel announces the birth of John the Baptist. All right, go with me to verse number five. There was in the days of Herod, and we're told we're, that, that tells us a lot. It's the days of Herod. Those were some bad days. The king of Judea, a certain man named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, these were very dark days in Israel, about as dark as they had ever been. Uh, very similar to the days when Israel was in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, they were living under the iron fist of Rome. And to make matters even worse, Rome had appointed a very evil vassal king named Herod. He's called Herod the Great. Uh, he was not an Israelite, and yet he ruled over the Israelites. He was an Ottoman. Uh, which is an Edomite, and where the Edomites come from, they come from Esau, and so you, you can already see the tension here. Uh, and some people, you know, some of the Jews like Herod because Herod built for them the temple. And he built the temple for them to get them to like them, but don't, don't, don't put too much uh, uh, on, on that because Herod built a lot of temples. I mean, if you go to Israel today, there are pagan temples all over the place. You go to every high hill, and there's a pagan temple, and and uh, Herod built every one of those. All he was trying to do was to appease all his constituents. And the Jews were the largest group of constituents. So the greatest piece of architecture that he built was the temple there in Jerusalem. But he was a very wicked man. You, wanna, you want some interesting reading sometimes? Uh, you, just go online and read about Herod the Great and some of the things that he did. I mean, he was so paranoid and so... Uh, power hungry that he killed his own son because he saw his son as a potential rival. Not only did he kill his own son, he killed his own wife. And, and, and he did a lot of things like that. And uh, he was all about himself. He was taxing the people so he could build palaces. Every place that, 
Every area of Israel today you can go, there's some sort of palace you can find that was built for Herod himself. So he had palaces all over Palestine. Now, not only were things bad, it seemed as if God had gone silent. Now, I, I, I used to say this myself, and I hear it from a lot of expositors, that, that uh, God went silent for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, uh, between Malachi and Luke. I, I don't think so. I don't think God ever goes silent because God never abdicates uh, his throne. But from a written word standpoint, a pro written prophetic word standpoint, a great prophet on the scene, from that standpoint, God had gone silent. God still was speaking, speaking to his own remnant. I have no doubt about that. I mean, it seems like God has gone silent today in the United States of America. But I still believe he speaks to his remnant. And we're his remnant, so we're still hearing from God, even though I don't think this country hears anything from God. It's obvious this country doesn't hear anything from God. And that's the way it was then. There hadn't been a prophetic written word for 400 years, and, and that guy was an, an Italian, Malachi. Actually, it was Malachi. Uh, so, so let's go back and let's look at this last written word that God gave before now he's going to speak the next written word. And really, I think this is the first thing he begins to speak that's written down. There's some other background stuff that's written down in Matthew and written down in Luke, but this is really God speaking again through the angel, not through a prophet, through the angel Gabriel. Now, he's going to speak through John the Baptist. That's the next prophet to come on the scene, but there's this bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I want to go back for a minute. If you will, turn with me back to Malachi and look at the very end of Malachi. That's where we want to head. The last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And we want to look and see what, or we want to hear what were the last words that God spoke before this 400-year uh, period of silence. And, and what did he say? Well, I want to pick up in chapter number 3 of Malachi, verse number 1, because this is where we're heading today. Chapter 3 of Malachi, verse number 1. And this is the Lord, if you look at the very... Last part of the verse, just look at the very last part of verse number one. It tells you who's speaking here. Who is it? Everybody, who is it? The Lord of hosts. You got that in your head? I want you to see that because I'm going to show you a little tidbit of information here that, that I want you to see that in advance. It's the Lord of hosts who's speaking. Behold, I send my messenger. This is a prophecy. Now, who's the messenger? He's going to be speaking of John the Baptist. And he will prepare a way before Jesus. Is that what it says? Before who? Me. Who did John the Baptist come to prepare the way for? Jesus Christ. The Lord is speaking of me. The Lord of hosts is Jesus Christ. I mean, the deity of Jesus Christ is, is given to us throughout Scripture. When I hear somebody say that Jesus is not God, that really troubles me. That troubles me for their soul. You don't understand this until you're born again. But if you're born again, you know that Jesus Christ is God. And you don't have to look far in the Bible to find evidence of the fact that he's God. He is God Almighty. He's Jehovah God. Jehovah God is in the form of the Father. He's in the form of the Son. And he's in the form of the Holy Spirit. It is one God throughout eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's the same Jehovah God. There are not three distinct personalities of God. There's three distinct manifestations of God eternally, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I know I'm dealing with semantics here in a little bit, a little bit but, but Jesus is God. He is the Lord of hosts. Now, going on. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. What a great day that was when Jesus Christ walked into that temple. We'll look at that later on in the Gospel of Luke. Even... My, the messenger, Jesus Christ is the messenger of the covenant, the new covenant, in whom you delight. 
Behold, he is coming. The Lord is coming. The king is coming, uh, says the Lord of hosts. Now I want to look at the very last thing that the Lord speaks uh, through this prophet of the last two verses, and, and this is where we get to our text today. Look at, look at, the, look at verse number 5. It says of chapter 4, go all the way to chapter 4 to the end of the, the, the book of Malachi, the very end of the Old Testament, and listen to what the Lord says. Behold, I will send Elijah, the prophet, before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's coming. Uh, he's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That's the last thing the Lord had to say through the prophets, and the prophets were silenced at that point. And now we're going to come to the book of Luke, and the Lord's going to begin speaking again. Now, that prophecy there in the book of Malachi, that last last few verses there, it has a dual fulfillment. If the Jews had done what they had, were supposed to do, it would have been fulfilled in John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. In fact, remember what Jesus said over in, in Matthew chapter 11. He says, if you, can, if you can handle this, if you can handle this, John is Elijah. Now, what did he mean by that? If the Jews would have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, which is what they should have done, and God gave them the option to do that. God knew they weren't going to do that. But if they would have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, then John the Baptist would have been the Elijah spoken of right here. But they didn't receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. They killed Jesus Christ on the cross. So this still has a second fulfillment that will take place during the Great Tribulation, during the first half of the Great Tribulation, because remember what's going to happen. There are going to be two witnesses that are going to come to the earth uh, to declare the gospel again, to prepare the way, just what it says right here. Uh, it says, before the coming great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers and the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That's going to be his purpose when Elijah comes uh, in the Great Tribulation. <coughs> now, they're not going to receive that word either. And what's going to happen, what's, what's it say here? Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, when John the Baptist came and Jesus came, they had a chance to receive Jesus Christ, and they didn't re receive Jesus Christ, and they were cursed. In 70 A.D., all of Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jews were scattered throughout the earth. They were cursed. And in the Great Tribulation, they're not going to receive the witness of, John the, uh, of, of Elijah, and they're going to be cursed during the great tribulation too so now as we we come back here to the gospel of luke uh we're going to pick up where god left off and this is very important uh we're going to we're going to actually pick up and god's going to speak now again through gabriel this very same prophecy and we're going to see it bridged to the new testament so go with me over to to the back to the the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 1. And let's go back to that verse we just read. Let me read it again. It says, There was in the days of Herod, verse number 5, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So, Here's God, and he's about to speak again, and he's going to speak to this guy, Zacharias, and it's going to be recorded for us uh, through, by Dr. Luke uh, in the written word, uh, and he's going to speak through Gabriel, who appears to this man named Zacharias, who is married to his wife named Elizabeth. Interesting names there. Zacharias means God remembers. Elizabeth means his oath. And so you put those two together, God remembers his oath. That's exactly what's happening here. God is remembering his oath to who? To Israel, directly, but indirectly, way back to who? 
Abraham. Remember those promises he made to Abraham? That's, that's what's being fulfilled right here, partially fulfilled right here uh, in this <coughs> encounter with Zacharias has with Gabriel. Now, Zacharias, it's interesting to note, especially now we're in Nehemiah, that he's of the priestly division of Abijah. We're going to see the name Abijah when we come to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 12, verse number 4. You see the name of Abijah. You see his name a few times in the book of 1 Chronicles. He was a direct descendant of Aaron. So he's part of the Aaronic priest line. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a direct descendant of Aaron. But in the world's eyes at this point, Zacharias and Elizabeth were nobodies. They were a couple of nobodies. But in God's eyes, they were royalty. Uh, look at verse number 6, and we, see, we begin to see this encounter. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. They were blameless. Now, that doesn't mean that through their works they became righteous. And that's where some people come and interpret this text. That's not what it's saying at all. Where does your righteousness come from? It comes from faith. Uh, what made Zacharias and Elizabeth great people of God was the fact that they had great faith in God. And faith without works is dead. If you have real and living faith, then you're going to walk as they walk. You're going to walk in the commandments and you're going to walk in the ordinance of, of the Lord and you're going to live a blameless life. Now, you're going, to have, you're going to make some mistakes along the way and I'm sure they did. We're going to see one of Zacharias' mistakes here right away. He certainly, his faith is, as strong as it was, had some, had, had some, he had some chinks in his armor there too. And we'll see that here in just a minute. But for the most part, they were living as a godly, uh, they were living as godly people should live. Then in verse number seven, but they had no child. Who's this remind you of? They were, they were elderly people. They had no child. Who's this remind you of? Abraham and Sarah. A very similar situation. Uh, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. And Zacharias was a lot like Abraham. He had faith in the Lord and he knew what God had done for Abraham. And I believe Zacharias was still praying that God would give him a son. In that culture, there, there were two reasons that you wanted a son. One is if you didn't have any children, that was a shame in that culture. You, you, you were a reproach in that culture if you didn't have children. But for your line to carry on, you had to have a son. And that line in the, in the, in the Jewish mindset and in that culture meant everything. You wanted to have a genealogy. You wanted to continue on your genealogy because genealogies are so important, rightfully so, to the Jew. And so, so Zacharias, more than anything else, wanted a son. And, and we're given that little bit of information because look what happens next in verse number 8. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, he was a Levite. Uh, no doubt, probably he had come uh, to Jerusalem for the, uh, uh, for the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, there were 20,000 Levites that served during all of those major feasts. And so he was one of many. But he won the lottery this day. Look what happened. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell. They cast lots to see where you worked. Uh, most people worked on the, in, in, out uh, outside the temple where they made the sacrifices and ministered to the people. They sang hymns to the people. They did all of these things. Very few people got to work in the temple proper. Very few of the Levites. A few got to work in the naos, in the holy place, in the very holiest place where you have the showbread and the, and the holiest of holies and the Ark of the Covenant and all that. Very few people got that privilege. But his lot fell to the point that that he did get a chance to, to work in the holy place. It says, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. He was the one to burn the incense. What a great privilege he had that day. Now, was that luck? Was that just luck? No, that wasn't luck. God appointed him that day to be in that place because he's going to have this encounter uh, with the uh, great angel Gabriel. Proverbs 16. 
uh, says this. It says the lot is cast into the lap of man, but it's every decision is determined by God. It was God who determined that the lot would fall for, for uh, uh, Zacharias, and he would get this chance to actually go into the holy place and burn incense at, at the very uh, gate that went into the holiest holy, into the very presence of God. Now, think about this. How often, as believers, we have that chance all the time. We can come before the Lord and we can pray and, and uh, we can know that our prayers are heard because our prayers are like incense that go up into, as a sweet smell and aroma to the Lord. We know that. In that culture, it was the priest who had that privilege. So here's Aaron, and, and, and the Jew understood that the Lord heard their prayers too, but not like they heard the priest's prayer. Not like they heard the priest's prayer, prayers uh, who was burning the incense. So here is Zacharias, <coughs> and he gets this chance, and he, and he has to go through the same procedures that we looked at when we were in the book of Exodus, when we looked at the tabernacle. What has he got to do? He's got to come to the to the burnt altar, the brazen altar, and a sacrifice has to be made for him in order for him to go into the holiest place. And then the sacrifice is made, the blood is put on the horns of the altar, then he walks over to the laver and he has to be washed, he has to be made holy. And then he goes into the holy place. This is a chance of a lifetime. He goes into the holy place and he sees the, the uh, menorah on the left and the showbread on the right, and he marches right up to the altar of incense right there in the very presence of God. Now, he's got the veil in front of him, but he's right there in the very presence of God, and he's to offer up prayers for the people of Israel. And he's thinking, I've got my chance. I'm going to pray, and I, I'm going to know that this prayer is going to be heard. I'm going to pray that God gives me a son. All right, now pick up with me at verse number 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. They knew that this was the time the priest was offering up his prayers. And so all the people are out there, all of uh, his relatives, all of his friends, and all of the Jewish people are out there hoping that their prayers go up too. And so they're praying with Zacharias, and Zacharias, no doubt, is praying for his son. And so, so they're outside praying, and, and uh, then look what happens. He prays, and then the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar. And when Zacharias saw him, I guess so, he was troubled, and, and fear fell upon him. This angel that is, we're going to see here in just a minute, this angel is named in the text, and the angel is none other than the angel Gabriel. Now, Gabriel has a unique ministry. I wish I had his ministry. I hope I have his ministry. His ministry is to share glad tidings. That's his ministry. He's really the angel of the gospel. That's, that's his job. You remember about 500 years earlier in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, when you get that prediction of the exact day when Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the exact day where he's going to be crucified. We get that exact prediction. You know who gives Daniel that prediction? It's none other than the angel Gabriel. In the next chapter, when Mary's out in the field and the, an angel appears to her to give her good tidings that she's going to bear the Son of God. Guess what angel it is? It's none other than Gabriel. When Joseph has an angel appear to him, it's none other than the angel of Gabriel. I mean, the angel Gabriel. I, I, when you get to the book of Revelation and there's an angel that writes the gospel across the sky, I have no doubt that that's probably, uh, uh, I have some doubts, but... Uh, that's probably none other than the angel Gabriel. What a great ministry he had. And so, uh, here he is, and he speaks to Zechariah. Zechariah, or he sees, Zechariah sees him. I mean, just imagine you're sitting there at the altar of incense, and all of a sudden there's this magnificent angel standing right before you. 
I mean, that had to be frightening. And so his, he's afraid, and, and the angel speaks to him in verse number uh, 13. The angel says, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Johan. Johan, which is short, which is the Greek for Jonathan. Nathan means gift. Joe means Jehovah. The gift of Jehovah. Your son is the gift of Jehovah to you. He's also the gift of Jehovah to the Israelites. He's also the gift of Jehovah to the entire world. You're going you're to bear a son who's going to be the greatest man, according to Jesus, who's ever lived, John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. And that, that certainly was a fulfilled prophecy. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be, watch this, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, you want a case of why abortion is such a terrible sin. When does God see life begin? He sees life begin in the womb. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. From the very conception of his life, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need wine. He wasn't just sealed with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit his entire life. That's encouraging to me. That's encouraging to me anyway. It might not be to you, but it's really encouraging to me that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit your entire life. It also speaks of the reality of what the filling of the Holy Spirit is. It's not some filling of invincible power, of invincible feelings that you never get hurt, that you, you, you never doubt that you that everything's perfect in your life that's not what it means to be filled with the holy spirit because john the baptist was filled with the holy spirit his entire life but when he's thrown into prison he's about to lose his head he even doubts that jesus is the messiah so see because you have your doubts and because you have trouble sometimes spiritually doesn't mean that you're not filled with the holy spirit he was filled with the holy spirit his entire life Now, go with me to verse number 16. I'm sorry, I lose track. you got three or four people walking in and out of here. It's really, really discouraging. Really, really discouraging. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children of the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. Where did we see that? What is, where, we saw that at the end of the book of Malachi. So here you have this Gabriel who picks up right where Malachi left off. And it's written for us in the book of Luke. Those very words are read in every synagogue every time they read the Nebiim, the prophets. The last thing they finish with are these very words that Gabriel gives us about John the Baptist. Because Israel rejected Jesus, they rejected John the Baptist. And so the Israelites are still waiting for this fulfillment, the fulfillment that came the first time in John the Baptist. All right, then in verse number 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know? How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is well advanced in years. In other words, 
Give me a sign. I need a sign. What is that right in front of you? You got a sign. When you got an angel speaking to you, you're not going to get much better sign than that. But he wants a sign. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence. You've got a sign, dude. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring to you glad tidings. And, and that should be enough of a sign. But because you want a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. But behold, you will be mute, not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. This is going to happen whether you believe it or not. And you want a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. Now, now he wasn't punishing uh, Zacharias for his doubts. He knew he was going to have his doubts. He wasn't punishing him for his doubts. He was giving him a sign. You want a sign, you're not going to be able to speak until this child is born. And the reason he gave him this particular sign, I'm, I'm sure under the direction of the Lord he gave him this particular particular sign was that God didn't want him going out and expressing his doubts God wanted him to be a witness of the great things that were about to take place in this world that the Messiah was coming that the king is coming soon and so so uh, he wanted him he, he he wanted him to be a sign and the sign was going to be you're not going to get to express any doubt you're not going to be able to speak at all and so the fact that this guy went in speaking and came out not speaking that was a that was a sign in and of itself but behold you will be mute. I'm sorry. Verse number 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he uh, lingered so long in the temple. So here are the people outside. And they would go to the temple during this time when the prayers were being lifted up and the incense was being burned. And they would wait for the priest to come out once he had made those prayers to pronounce on them the ironic blessing. God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he give you peace. Uh, they were waiting for that ironic blessing, and he comes out, and he doesn't speak. And they're sort of disappointed because that ironic blessing was important to them. The priest had that power, and he'd been in the holy place, and, and they wanted that blessing spoke. But they got something even better. They got a sign. Uh, he came out, and he didn't speak. Uh, and, uh, but when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision uh, in the temple. And for he beckoned in them, in, in there, and remained speechless, and glorified God by his silence. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed in his own house. Now, after those days, uh, now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, "Thus." The Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So here's Elizabeth. As we finish up, uh, she's hid herself for five months. Why is she hiding herself? Because she's ashamed. I mean, she had bore the reproach of not having a child for years and years, for decades. And now she's pregnant in her old age. And that looks kind of silly, doesn't it? And so she hides herself for five months, and then there's, you know, there's no hiding it. Once you're five months pregnant, you, you can't hide it anymore. So she comes out of the closet, and now she's going to be bold, and she says, look what the Lord has done for me. He's given me a son in my old age, and he's taken away my reproach. So we'll stop there. We'll pick up next time. And, but what you have right here in these first few verses in the chapter of Luke, in this story, is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You have this merging of the supernatural, the glorious supernatural, with the mundane ordinary. I think we need a little of that now in our own lives. Uh, that's why I love the book of Luke, because that's what, and I love the Christmas story in the book of Luke, because it takes our Focus off the mundane ordinary, which I don't know we can call our days mundane, or mundane ordinary, but they, they, even COVID gets and masks and all of those things uh, become the new norm. And we can put our eyes on the, the glorious supernatural. That's what happened to the Jews 
when, when, when John came out of that temple and he couldn't speak, he could write, he couldn't speak, they knew that God was back at work in the land. They knew something glorious and supernatural was about to happen. They knew that the king was coming soon. And they're excited. You know, we live in exciting times. I, I mean, strange times. I'm not going to say good times, tough times like they're living. But they're exciting times. They're exciting times because i got to tell you, the word is out just like it was back then. The word is out that all of these things mean something. All of these things that are happening around us is God speaking to us. And I'm going to tell you what he's speaking to us. He's speaking to us that the king is coming soon. That's what he's speaking to us. And that should excite all of us. If you're not excited about that, God bless you is all I can say. If this stuff doesn't excite you, you you need to figure out why it doesn't excite you. Because there's something wrong if we don't get excited about what's going on in this world today and about what this word tells us about what's going to go on when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll do the Lord's Supper. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the great news that we know that you're going to be coming back to this earth soon and very soon. Lord, we look at all the things that are going on. We live in days much like the days the Israelites lived when you came to this earth the first time. Lord, it were, they were dark days. They were tough days, just like we're living in now, Lord. And we, we know, Lord, from your word, the word's out, that you're coming to this earth and you're coming very soon. Lord, help us to make that some sort of priority in our life. Lord, help us to get excited about, about you. Help us to care about these things. Help us to, to, to Lord... I can't move people's spirit, but you can. Lord, move my spirit in a way that, that, that Lord, that all I can think about is you and about your soon coming. And I ask you to do that for all of us, Lord, because we're so dry and it's so dead all around us, Lord. It's so dark. Lord, bring your light to this dark and dying world. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray.
Isaiah chapter 9 we have that great prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ and it, in that prophecy it says for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given as we come to the gospel of Luke we study about this child that was born but we also study later on about the son who was given because the child who was born who was not given serves no purpose for us at all but the child who was given as the son of God on the cross to die for our sins serves such wonderful eternal purpose in our lives we're so grateful to the Lord as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 